Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Broll. Please enjoy all of the episodes of North Coast Chronicles on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire fabulous collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland seas at CoastalNewsToday.com. Today's podcast is The Real History Behind Reversing the Chicago River. With us as our guest is an absolute expert on the subject. Mr. Dick Lanyon spent 48 years with the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago, where he became the executive director and ran the day-to-day operations, which addresses the industrial wasteload equivalent for 9 million people. And if that isn't enough, Mr. Lanyon has published numerous books on the region's watersheds, including in 2012, Building the Canal to Save Chicago, in 2016, the book, Draining Chicago, The Early Years and the North Area. In 2018, West by Southwest to Stickney, Draining the Central Area of Chicago and Exercising Clout. And in 2020, the book, Calumet, First and Forever, Draining the South Area of Chicago and Territorial Expansion. Mr. Lanyard is a major league engineer and has degrees from University of Illinois, UC. He is highly recognized by his peers from the American Society of Civil Engineers and many other organizations with awards galore. Calling us from Evanston, Illinois, Mr. Dick Lanyon, thank you so much for joining North Coast Chronicles today. Thank you, Helen. It's a pleasure to be here. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler. On our last episode, we shared that you were feeling under the weather and could not participate as usual. Well, thank you for jumping in today. I trust you're feeling better. I am feeling so much better. Feels great to have my health back. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know, holiday time is upon us, and I have my signed and framed print of the Rouse Simmons Christmas tree ship on the mantle. It looks fabulous. We talked about the original Christmas tree ship two years ago on the podcast and how the U.S. Coast Guard icebreaker Mackinac continues their tradition of bringing trees from Upper Michigan to Chicago, where they are no longer sold as the Rouse Simmons was used, but instead donated to families in need. It's an annual event in Chicago when the Mackinac arrives, and it's on my bucket list to join it one year. I'm sure you remember that episode, Tyler. I certainly do. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was quite charming. Um, and uh, thank you for the U.S. Coast Guard for what they do to continue that tradition. You know, Helen, one of the things on that episode that I found so interesting was that up there, you know, and then they'd go up north on the Rouse Simmons and collect Christmas trees. And they could collect them for three cents a piece and then bring them back to Chicago and sell them for 75 cents a piece. And this year I got our Christmas tree and it was $80. <laughs> so I, I'll tell you what, maybe, maybe we got to, I mean, we got to be careful, but maybe we should bring this business back. <laughs> well, I don't know if we want to do it by schooner, by the way, but uh, uh, it, it, it definitely uh, could be a good business, but boy, it's only once a year for these guys, Tyler. So I guess I got to make hay while they can. That's right. Well, in our last podcast, we re-examined the storm that sank the Edmund Fitzgerald. Joining us was Tom Holquist, the Science and Operations Officer for the National Weather Service in Minneapolis, Minnesota. On November 10, 1975, during a severe storm, 
the Great Lakes bulk cargo vessel SS Edmund Fitzgerald sank with loss of all 29 crew members in Eastern Lake Superior. The vessel sank quickly without sending a distress signal. Tom was part of a group analysis of that storm through the eyes of modern technology. We talked about the extent to which this was the perfect storm or a typical gale of November. Now, Tyler, while we did not judge the actions of weather measurements or ship operators in November of 1975, we did note that the weather analysis technology of the National Weather Service and the weather observation capabilities of ship operators was far less sophisticated than it is today. After you had the chance to re-listen to that episode, what were your impressions? Well, a couple things. One is, man, oh man, that must have been a just one hell of an experience to be at sea in that storm. Uh, the way that you laid that thing out, Helen, with you know the the minute by minute uh, radio calls and everything was just you know you just can't help but to relate with the what the experience of being at sea in those conditions. And of course, looking at the storm in retrospect, I just, you know, I just didn't, there's so much about the weather of the Great Lakes I didn't know. But what's interesting about the, these November storms is the warm water meeting the cold air. I had no idea that that was such a precipitating factor in, in driving up those big waves. Yeah. And a, a poignant observation by Tom and his colleagues was that the storm concentrated almost in one spot on Lake Superior for six hours. And that the storm acted differently than a seasoned Great Lakes Mariners might have experienced previously. However, one may classify it, the outcome was clearly tragic. Um, and, and once again, allow us to give a shout out to our American merchant mariners who move commerce every day to support our quality of life and really mourn for those who have perished in its pursuit. So, so thank you, Tyler. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad you got to go back and, and re-listen because I did a couple of times um, to find that that six hours, either way, could have made a huge difference. It's, it's, it's kind of something. It truly is. It truly is. Well, very early in our American history, the potential for Chicago to be the center of an expansive water system connecting the east and the west with its location on Lake Michigan and along the Chicago River prompted the federal government to establish Fort Dearborn in 1803 where Chicago now sits. Also early on, a canal had been considered to more fully connect Chicago to the Illinois and Mississippi rivers for trade and transportation purposes. In about 1833, the federal government appropriated $25,000 for dredging the Chicago Harbor and construction on a shipping canal began in 1836, over 60 years before the Chicago River was reversed. There was no shortage of written and digital stories about the Chicago River and how it was reversed almost 124 years ago on January 1st, 1900. It is referred to as an engineering marvel and certainly it took engineering know-how and backbreaking work to create this big ditch. But the story of Chicago's challenges as a booming metropolis started way before the redirection of the Chicago River and has everything to do with its location on the southwestern shore of Lake Michigan and the great Chicago population boom. Further, Chicago experiences many current and future challenges due to its location on the Great Lakes related to climate change and its continued large population. Dick Lanyon, as the person who knows probably more than anyone about the story of turning Chicago from a marsh into a metropolis, which is your term, we're so grateful you could join us today. Thank you again. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. 
Dick, you hail from the north branch of the Chicago River. Would one describe that area as kind of near North Chicago? The north branch drains uh, a good-sized area from uh, Lake County, Illinois, which is north of Cook County, um, down into the Chicago River system. So, it, yeah, a little more north, I guess. It's more broadly based than that. So um, definitely a, a Chicago area guy for sure. Um, and you spent 48 years with the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. They were so lucky to have you as their executive director, given your extraordinary experience and knowledge about the complexities of Chicago's various watersheds. What does the Water Reclamation District do? Well, it is a um, unit of local government in uh, Cook County, uh, the Chicago metropolitan area. It provides wastewater and stormwater services for the uh, uh, the area of Cook County, which is about five million population. I'm guessing, though, that you, you know that immediate five million population that the impact of the greater watershed area impacts, as I read, like nine million people. So that's pretty impressive operation you've got there. And you had a huge responsibility as their executive director. Um, and obviously, you've got 48 years of experience. Um, Dick, we have prefaced many of our podcasts by emphasizing that the Great Lakes were carved by glaciers. Um, how did glaciers um, form and impact the Chicago area? Well, anyone who's visited the Chicago area will realize how flat it is here. Um, and that is because the <clears throat> as the glacial epoch uh, came to an end, uh, the meltwaters uh, formed the uh, Chicago area uh, with sediments that laid down the um, the soil and the um, on top of the bedrock and, and created a fairly level surface. Um, it's mostly clay uh, with a little sand on top. So um, when it rains, the water just kind of sits on top mm-hmm. of the clay. And we have uh, a lot of drainage issues because of, of the natural formations. Yeah, uh, that's a really great point. Clay isn't very permeable. <laughs> so um, that adds to that whole low lying. So um, so Chicago was really a low lying area and mostly a marshland, correct? That's correct. You know, when Chicago was incorporated into a full-fledged city in 1837, and obviously was a busy trading center with water access via the Mississippi River and Lake Michigan, um, and it wasn't too long before railroads enhanced its advantages. But did, could you set the stage of Chicago of the mid-1800s? What, did, what was it kind of like generally? Well, it was a pretty muddy place. Um, the uh, early settlers didn't have any notion about sewers. And uh, so... A lot of the uh, results of human occupation here were waterborne diseases, uh, cholera, uh, and then typhus, because uh, uh, the water didn't drain away very, very easily. And so you were basically sitting in your own wastewater. And that was pretty much the way the city was up until um, the middle of the 1800s when they started uh, to build sewers. So I I had read that um, some early written observations from when Chicago was incorporated do mention that Chicago was low-lying marshy area. So there's really good record on that, although it 
obviously it was well known. Um, and honestly, Chicago seems to have been had strategic advantages its location, but wasn't a great place to build a city. I can imagine it was difficult to build operable streets in that condition. Um, so if drainage was horrible for building houses and streets, one can only imagine how living there was impacted by sewage and other pollutants, as you mentioned. Not to mention what the groundwater situation might have been like, given the you know the clay bedrock. Could you tell us a little bit um, about the early water supply methods and management in Chicago? Well, of course, being on the shore of Lake Michigan, Lake Michigan was the primary source of water. Um, water wells were not uh, a good source of water because of a lot of the pollution that would seep down into the ground from the surface. And uh, But they did not have a distribution system. Water was um, taken by carts from the lakefront and to homes and so forth. And so that was the first kind of enterprise we had here for uh, water delivery. Uh, in the 1850s, they began to uh, build a water distribution system, and it uh, took a few decades for it to be completed. But the uh, water from Lake Michigan wasn't treated. It was just pumped to uh, homes and businesses. And uh, it took many years before the uh, treatment of water came into being. Uh, initially, water was just uh, taken from near the shore. But um, because of the pollution from the Chicago River, uh, the city in the, the 1860s be, um, began a project to dig a water tunnel under the lake uh, two miles from shore to a water intake crib. And that provided better quality water for the city, albeit it still was not treated or filtered in any way. So as Chicago grew and the overall drainage issues exacerbated the sanitation problems, you kind of mentioned that there were some a couple of early but big steps long before reversing the river. Um, what were they, and did they solve the issues? Well, before the river flow was reversed, we had a a uh, sort of a mini um, reverse uh, system because in the 1830s, the Illinois and Michigan Canal was constructed. It uh, was opened in 1848. This was a small canal that was um, strictly for navigation, uh, it wasn't built for to, for drainage to reverse the flow of the river, but by virtue of the fact that water had to flow for boats to flow, uh, it did uh, withdraw some of the pollution from the Chicago River and uh, over the subcontinental water divide and uh, on down to the Illinois River, which eventually flows into the Mississippi. Um, However, this, because of the poor drainage, this was a very limited, uh, provided very limited relief for the city. And uh, the, uh, the other issue we had here was because of the flatness of the topography, one of our rivers on the western part of the metropolitan area, the Des Plaines River, which naturally, naturally flows down to the Illinois River, would occasionally overtop its banks and the floodwaters would flow towards Lake Michigan. Um, and that uh, made the pollution problems in the, the lake uh, much worse. 
Thank you. You know, I worked at the Chicago Port District and and I knew about trade on the Chicago River, the Calumet River and Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. But I'm embarrassed to say I did not know about the Illinois and Michigan Canal. So I'm embarrassed about that because that is really the first, um, you know, connections, transportation connections to, you know, make Chicago kind of multidimensional, you know, uh, transportation via Lake Michigan and transportation um, down the river. So that's pretty cool. Um, But could you talk a little bit more? um, Well, let me back that by saying, I understood that the original Illinois-Michigan Canal was kind of based along an original portage used by the Indian population of the time. Yes, isn't that correct? Um, They kind of knew that there was this area in which you could transit. Um, Tell me, tell us a little bit more about that, that spot in that area and why the canal was built there. Well, the portage was a... um a uh, an area where uh, you know in 1673 uh the french explorers uh, louis joliet and his uh, partner the uh, um jesuit priest uh, Ma- jacques marquette um were exploring the mississippi river to find a passage to the pacific ocean um they uh, didn't find <laughs> passes to the Pacific, but by virtue of their explorations, they paddled up the Illinois River and the uh, local indigenous uh, people guided them to this um, portage where you could easily move from the Des Plaines River over into the Chicago River. And of course, uh, Juliet, Juliet envisioned the possibility of a canal to breach this very subtle subcontinental divide. And that was re- really the impetus for eventually the construction of the Illinois and Michigan Canal uh, and later the reversal of the flow of the Chicago River. Um, so um, today we have a, um, a national historic site here at the location of the portage. Yeah, I think there's a there's a statue there, but it should be noted that it was really um, the, the 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 Native Americans in that area that knew about it certainly long before the French explorers um, and used it readily. So, what's fascinating, I think, is Chicago as a sub, literally on a subcontinental divide, um, which has everything to do with how these um, transfers could be made at how the flows go in two different directions. Could you describe that subcontinental divide and and what it is and how Chicago sits upon it? Well, I think everyone knows um, what a continental divide is, such as the Rocky Mountains out west, um, where flows go to different oceans. But here in the Chicago area, whether you're uh, on the shore of Lake Michigan or over on the Des Plaines River, the water ends up in the Atlantic Ocean, so it's called the subcontinental divide. And it is very subtle. You wouldn't see any elevation um, that it would indicate that there is a, a divide of the watersheds. But it is there, and um, um, it's been very 
totally modified by the construction of drainage infrastructure, the, all the sewers and the tunnels and so forth. And uh, the um, actual portage route has been urbanized so that it's uh, the only vis um, visible evidence of the portage is this small historic site out um, near the western edge of the city uh, on the Des Plaines River. So um, it, that's, this is where water on the east side flows would have normally flowed towards Lake Michigan and water on the west side flows towards the Des Plaines River, correct? That's correct. Okay. So I, I think that's fascinating because it also, um, just the geography lent itself to eventually, uh, well, one, to connecting the um, the the Chicago River to the Des Plaines through the old Illinois Michigan Canal, and then subsequently uh, through the Chicago Ship and Sanitary Canal. And I I just find that fascinating, and I'll explain a little bit more about that why I find that so interesting. Because like you said, it's so subtle you wouldn't necessarily know it um, by driving across it. Um, and of course, it it's you know like you said, the metropolis has taken over at at this point. Before again. You know, as we talked about, from almost day one, um, when the city was incorporated and became a boom town, trying to deal with this marshland was a challenge, um, and moving pollution out was a challenge. So the industries of those days were also contributing, right? So you had the the stockyards and um, many other industries that were also polluting. Um, but could you, you know, um, as a person who lived in the Chicago, lived in the south side of Chicago for a number of years working at the Port District, um, certainly I hung out in Chicago and near the water and saw that there were two levels of streets. Now, honestly, at the time, I didn't think much about it. It just kind of felt like, oh, they built a, you know, city on top of a city. But that's not really, it was really for a purpose. Could you explain um, how you have these two levels of the city and what that was about? Well, sure. The um, and it's all related back to the the uh, formation of the topography here by the glaciers. <clears throat> the Chicago River flowed into the Lake Mich into Lake Michigan, but the, the land surface was very low, not uh, much elevation above the river level, and of course, Lake Michigan being natural body of water it would vary from year to year um, maybe over a different a range of five or six feet so when the lake was high um, the rivers were backed up a little bit and uh, they would tend to flood the land along the river and of course and then when the lake was lower the rivers would drain out and the land along the river was a little drier but uh, this uh, didn't bode well for the construction of sewers because to have a sewer, you need a free outlet. Um, so what was done was they would build the sewers basically on the top of the ground and then filled in the ground to raise the level of a street. So whereas the earliest settlers just had muddy streets, Later on, with the higher water, the higher land level, by filling in the streets, the streets were more passable. But of course, that meant some of the early buildings had to be either raised or you would just make the second floor the ground floor. So literally, they raised buildings to 
um, be level with the new streets. Is that correct? And how much did they raise the, the streets? Well, it varied from place to place. Generally, it was raised about 10 feet. That's kind of crazy. So they built the sewers, right? I mean, I guess we're talking pipes. Is that what they did? Basically, yes. Yeah, so they built pipes and then um, and then built, filled it in, but it raised the streets. Um, so how did... How did people have these houses raised? I mean, what what era? Are we talking about 1850s at this point? Well, most of the structures were small. There were no skyscrapers then. Um, there were some larger um, um, buildings uh, like uh, hotels or whatever. And uh, some of them were uh, had to be jacked up in order to bring the first level up to the street level. Uh, George Pullman, who later built railroad cars, started his uh, his career by um, being in the building raising business. I think that I had seen a video where they would put jacks under the entire house, and they'd have an, uh, one person, mostly guys, right, and they would literally all pull at the same time to jack it up, right? And like literally like pull. And then, you know, to, and so it would get raised slowly but surely. And I guess they would put something under it to keep it at that level, um, which sounds crazy. But it also sounds expensive. So I'm guessing not all the houses were raised. No, not all buildings were raised. That's why in some places the, the second floor became the first floor. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and the first floor became the basement. And we still have some neighborhoods, uh, not in the downtown area, but in the neighborhoods near downtown that have sunken backyards and um, vaulted sidewalks. Yeah. So, so if you couldn't afford to raise your house to the new street level, you had to have steps that took you down. And I'm guessing those pipes then were kind of ran in front of your house. Right. That's correct. I mean, that's what that, that was your view. Wow. Okay. So, so um, those those pipes were put in, and the city was raised, um, and then so this this all that stuff, the sewage and everything, still running into like Michigan, right? So, how did that work out for them? Well, the the workers when you put sewers in, um, instead of the pollution staying on the land, the land was drained. Uh, that improved the public health a little bit, but then the river became grossly polluted because you have a, a basically a slow-moving stream that's uh, loaded with sewage, and uh, only in wet weather periods would the sewage move out, uh, unfortunately, into the lake, which was the source of the water supply. So this was this was a a round robin of uh, polluting your own water supply and uh, trying to survive in this uh, unhealthy environment. Yeah, and, and the diseases were what, typhoid and diphtheria, or what were the... It was um, primarily cholera in the middle parts of the 1800s, and then towards the end, it was typhus. Oy. So, um, on one hand, you're kind of you're moving everything successfully moving everything onto the river um when it's slow moving slow going you get to smell all that all through the city as it's coming together goes out into lake michigan um and then uh, that's where you get your drinking water so it sounds like it created another problem how did they deal with that other problem of of how do they then deal with getting their water from lake michigan at that point 
well, um, the lake was still the water supply. And as I indicated earlier, uh, in the 1860s is when the city built this two-mile water tunnel under the lake bed out to an intake crib. And by taking water two miles offshore, you got better quality water. So that uh, that was the solution for uh, for the time being, um, and uh, you know the water supply was. Excuse me here. Um, the water not being treated, you know, you would uh, occasionally have a little fish come through the faucet or something like that. A, a little surprise. Yeah, that's that's funny, not funny, right? Um, that that you're still getting water. So, so just to kind of repeat what you said, in order to um, ensure that the water they were getting from Lake Michigan wasn't impacted by all that junk going in via the Chicago River into the lake, they dug an underground tunnel from Chicago out two miles. How did they do that? I, I, I got to mean, what year is this again? Because it sounds pretty backbreaking. Well, it was quite a daring project. Uh, how they did it, they sunk a shaft on the shore um, uh, and uh, down about 50, 60 feet. And meanwhile, they... Uh, went out into the lake at the point where they wanted to build the intake and they built what we call a coffer dam. Basically, you fill in the lake and then pump out the area that you have uh, isolated from the free from the water uh, so that you have a dry area where you can construct a vertical shaft. Um, and then uh, once they got down below, uh, they would sink the shaft below the lake bed. And then with two crews, one starting out two miles out in the water uh, and the other crew starting uh, on the shore down at the bottom of these shafts, uh, they would uh, dig toward each other. And uh, it took a couple years, but eventually the two tunnels met in the middle, fortunately. Um, and uh, they were able to line the tunnels and then uh, put them into operation to bring in water from the lake. So, so Dick, you know, in Chicago, there's this historic white building. Um, it's a, cause I don't know if it's made of you know, granite, but it's a, a very cool looking white building. It's like the original water tower. Is that related to the original tunnel that was built? Yes, the, uh, the the water tower was the so-called standpipe for the water system that provided pressure in the distribution system. Um, and it was built across the street from the pumping station that was built on the shore at the end of the underground tunnel. Well, thank you. It, it's so interesting, that building. Um, but um, so... Now you're getting your water from two miles out. I'm assuming it helped a little bit to prevent diseases with folks. Um, but um, gosh, if you have huge flooding and overflow even back then, and I think flooding is not uncommon even from you know 100 years ago to the present, did they ever have issues still? I mean, did that fix the problem? Uh, well, it helped. Um, 
of course, as technology improved, eventually water treatment, um, the, the uh, drinking water was chlorinated to kill off bacteria. And then later on, uh, filtration plants were built to uh, make the water uh, clearer and uh, to eliminate the passage of, of um, fines and fishes and so forth through the distribution system. But um, just by building that underwater tunnel two miles out, did it, um, I mean, then why, how did we get from uh, getting water from two miles out, having sewer pipes now moving things into the Chicago River into Lake Michigan, then why did it kind of evolve into the whole concept of reversing the river? Well, um, having the city grow as much as it did with sewers, more sewers, more sewers, more people, and then industry, you know, you had a tremendous amount of pollution in the Chicago River. Now, you have to realize that in 1871, we had a big fire here, the Great Chicago Fire, which literally destroyed the center of the city. So it took a few years to uh, recover from that. Um, and that fire occurred after the completion of these under this tunnel that ran under the lake bed. Um, but in the 1880s, um, uh, people began to then concern themselves with the pollution in the river because it was a terribly offensive uh, situation. Um, you couldn't walk along or across the, a bridge over the river without having to hold your nose. And in the middle 1800s, there was a big storm. A lot of flood water from the Des Plaines River flushed out the river. Fortunately, it didn't reach the two-mile uh, water intake, but it did uh, put the citizens on notice that a disaster could have, could have occurred. So they began to think about a better way to manage the wastewater and um, the idea of reversing the flow of the river came into being. Um, and of course, uh, it required legislative authority and that occurred and then uh, eventually construction began uh, after 1890. So um, how did they do it? Was it just as simple as having um, using the, the, the subcontinental divide, and did they use the existing Illinois and Michigan Canal? Um, tell me how that, how that worked, because I, I'll tell you why I'm asking, because is it, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's an engineering marvel from an engineering standpoint. It seems like there's a certain amount of um, existing geography and, um, that, and understanding of how water was moving, um, whether they're, you know, at different points, where it moved, how it moved. Um, and I was wondering if it was more of a, just a, a physical getting the job done and backbreaking work. And of course there were some probably early steam shovels at that time, but can you tell me how it kind of went from this um, concept um, into where they start and how did they actually build it? Well, um, of course it was a huge construction project um, known around the world. Um, you know, if you're going to go out and build a canal to reverse the flow of rivers, that's not something you do every day. But again, we have to look back on the blessing of the glaciers and the topography. The Illinois and Michigan Canal was built 
not only to transit the subcontinental divide, but also to uh, allow boats to navigate down the Des Plaines and the Illinois River, which had some cascades and rapids and so forth. Because um, the uh, land, when you get 40 miles away from Chicago down to the southwest, where the Des Plaines River is, then you find yourself below the level of Lake Michigan. So the engineers of the day said, aha, we just have to build a bigger canal and build it far enough to take advantage of the drop off in the land. And, um, you know, gravity will make the river flow the other way. And that's what was done. So, um, uh, as I said, it was a huge, massive construction project. It took eight years, starting in 1892, completed in 1900 to um, effect the reversal of the flow of the Chicago River. Well, I would think that the people living downriver from Chicago could not have been happy to have pollution sent their direction. And I think there's a bit of a stealthy story related to um, St. Louis um, putting up a fuss about it. Um, and trying to finish it before all of that went through. Could you share that story with us? Well, St. Louis uh, was worried about what was happening up in Chicago. Um, But in the 1890s, nobody was treating sewage. The technology just didn't exist. If, you know, you could treat, you could have a pit privy uh, for your home, but for a large population, sewage treatment technology did not exist. But anyway, uh, St. Louis tried to stop the project, but uh, they were unsuccessful. The additional water um, from Chicago, not the sewage, but you see um, the idea was to divert the sewage to flow away from Chicago down towards the Mississippi, but also to dilute it with large quantities of lake water. Uh, people of the day knew that a flowing river would p- cleanse itself, and that was what was done here. They they were they were using they were using dilution to treat the pollution in the river. Um, now, uh, by the time you flow from Chicago to St. Louis, a lot of the pollution will have been um, assimilated, uh, and. Um, St. Louis wasn't successful in stopping the project because, you know, what was St. Louis doing with their sewage? Well, they were sending it down the Mississippi toward Memphis. So uh, on a matter of equity, why should uh, Chicago be uh, held up from uh, not treating their sewage when St. Louis wasn't, wasn't doing the same? So anyway, the project uh, was taken to completion and the Chicago River was reversed. You know, though, I I think that I had read that um, St. Louis had a court injunction or they had a, you know, they were suing Chicago to stop the project and uh, and um, and understood that, you know, dilution is the solution to pollution concept that like Michigan waters are going to combine and it's all going to mix and you won't know the difference. But but um, before it could all be finalized in the courts, wasn't there a deadline like that, um, a, a deadline by which they would be stopped um, and that on the first, January 1st of 1900, 
then the uh, the, uh, the 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 people building this canal worked like crazy to get it open and done before the court injunction went through. And I, excuse me if I'm you know um, saying this incorrectly legally, um, but they they blew it open as fast as they could right before the end of the day. I guess just to get it moving is what uh, what I had read. Is that at all true? Or is that your understanding? Well, that's a bit of folklore. Um, the pressure was on to get the com- canal completed. The pressure was on because of the city of Chicago. The citizens wanted to end the pollution of the river. They wanted to have clean and safe drinking water. You know, when you, they started the project in 1892, they thought it would take only four years. Well, it took a little longer than that, and the and the population in Chicago was getting very antsy about this. When are you going to finish it? So that was the impetus to get the job done. Now, the St. Louis and the state of Missouri, they've, they tried to stop it by filing an injunction. And uh, the court said, well, how are you harmed? And St. Louis didn't have an answer. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. They haven't reversed the flow of the river yet. So the court said, well, okay, no injunction. We're not going to stop the construction. But the litigation did go on for several years. And, of course, you know, like any other litigation, each party hires experts, and the experts come up with their ideas. And basically the experts were canceling each other out. Um, One notable uh, advantage that Chicago had was – by increasing the flow down through the Illinois uh, River, the towns along the river had uh, ample water, and the navigation interests had ample water to conduct uh, their commercial business. And a lot of people in St. Louis liked the added water because the Mississippi River would dry up every once in a while, and then every you know, navigation would stop. So now they had a continuous supply of water. So it wasn't as bad as they thought it might be. That's a great observation about the river because many a time, uh, whether I was working in Chicago or still in maritime transportation, there have been issues of of, uh, of having to, um, Army Corps, try to keep things moving when the water's really low. So I can appreciate that point. That's interesting. Um Dick, can, I want to move forward a little bit in time. And I, I read that there was something called the Illinois Farm Drainage Act of 1879, and it established the authority to create drainage districts. And by 1929, there were 88 drainage districts covering almost 200,000 acres of the Chicago River entire the area. Now, what are these drainage districts? And, and what was their purpose at the time? Well, drainage districts were uh, was basically for agricultural purposes. Uh, you know, most of Illinois was uh, wet prairie, and in order to uh, for settlers to survive on this wet prairie, you wanted to be able to grow some crops and so forth. And so, uh, the drainage districts were there to uh, build uh, ditches and to drain the land. Um, so we even have these drainage districts up in the Chicago area. As the area was settled, of course, there was less farming and there was more residential development, and there are not very many drainage districts up in the Chicago area anymore, but they still 
are down along uh, downstate and principally along the rivers. Um, the Illinois River, starting um, around uh, LaSalle or Hennepin, going all the way down to Alton, there where it flows into the Mississippi, is lined with drainage districts. Uh, build levees, keep the river channeled, and then you can farm the uh, floodplain area. Um, so it was a benef very beneficial. Now, when it came time to build the sanitary and ship canal to reverse the flow of the Chicago River, they patterned the legislation on the same basis as the drainage district, except in this case, it was called a sanitary district. You were gonna build a canal to reverse the flow of the river for sanitary purposes to improve public health in the urban area of Chicago. Oh, that's very helpful, thank you. Because I wonder to what extent a drainage district actually helped um, you know, Chicago overall, but like you said, um, a little more uh, for agricultural purposes. So when did formal storm sewers come into play in Chicago? Chicago has a combined sewer system, not only Chicago, but about 50 of the suburbs around the city that were built in, um, you know, before World War II, which um, the, the combined sewer was the common um, means of drainage up until that time. Um, separate storm sewers have been built uh, since that time. But in the city and these 50-odd uh, suburbs, um, we still have combined sewers. But this combined sewers are not, were not built to handle the kinds of storms we have today. So many communities have built relief sewers to relieve the combined sewer to take the additional storm water. And um, because it's sometimes mixed with sewage, you have to treat this storm water from the combined sewer systems. Yeah, we, we've, you know, a lot of cities are still plagued with, um, you know, combined sewer overflows, and we can appreciate that. I'm just kind of interested in how it impacted Chicago. So it's my observation that flood events of historic, historical significance have played Chicago since it was settled. Um, and obviously the impact of floods on citizens kind of grew as the city grew. And I read that there have been recorded floods from geez, 1849, and then there was huge flooding in 2020. Um, how does the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, um, how are they engaged in that? And I guess I guess I want to know, like, I, asking, what's going on today? Um, given the fact that there's still that flooding is still an issue um, in Chicago because of where it is and and drainage, um, how is it today? I mean, where are what kind of things are being done to try to alleviate that? You talked a little bit about having these side things. Are there, is there a way to alleviate that really? Well, today, uh, and let's back up a little bit, uh, talk a little bit more about the reversal of the flow of the river. Um, up until 1939, uh, there was no control on the lakefront. Um, and uh because uh, the sanitary district was operating under state law and they were diverting water out of Lake Michigan as much as possible to prevent any river flow from going back into the lake, even when there was a storm. 
but uh, there was litigation by the other lake states about this. Uh, you know, they were claiming that you're taking too much water at Chicago. So as a result of litigation that was going on in the 1930s, the um, sanitary district was required to build a lock on the Chicago River downtown and and uh, harbor walls to isolate the river from the lake. And ever since that time, um, the river system has been managed to keep below the level of Lake Michigan so that um, no flow would go from the river back to the lake, unless, uh, except for those times of extreme storm when the river would rise up and could flow back into the lake. But by having the lock downtown, you uh, have a positive control to prevent that. So with a river maintained below the lake, and this is for navigation purposes, um, you have the ability to drain more water away from the city through the canal system. But when there's a big storm, then the canal system will rise up, and if you can't get all the water through the system down towards the Des Plaines River, then uh, occasionally you may have to discharge excess stormwater into the lake at the lock downtown, at the lock on the Calumet River, and up at the at the structure on the North Shore Channel in the Wilmette. Um, however, today with the Clean Water Act, we, we have to clean up the combined sewer overflows and keep them out of the surface water system. So the sanitary district, which is now called the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, has built the tunnel system, commonly referred to as deep tunnel, but uh, officially it's referred to by some agencies as the combined, uh, the Chicago underflow plan or the tunnel and reservoir plan. Anyway, built these tunnels a couple hundred feet underground and they will pick up all of the overflows through vertical shafts and convey them away from the city to large reservoirs. There's a large reservoir out south, there's a large reservoir out southwest, and there's a smaller river, a smaller reservoir up near the uh, O'Hare Airport. And these uh, reservoirs will contain the combined overflow until it has an opportunity to be taken back to the treatment plant for a treatment before being released to the waterway system. Wow, so ambitious. <laughs> Um, pretty incredible. And again, I, it goes back to where Chicago sits and how it sits and, and that it's naturally low line. And, and um, um, I'm just trying to imagine just the amount of water that moves through. And it, we talked to folks in Toronto about combined overflow systems, and that's still an issue. And it happens still. But so um, when um, you have I guess I'm trying to lead to your observation after all your years with the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District. Did you do you f find that the storms are more often? Is there an impact of climate change? What's your observations? And I'm not looking for you know an official position, but um, what's your observations after all your years of working um, with water systems in Chicago area? Well, I think we have a very uh, good, well-managed, and uh, sustainable water system. Um, we have um, 
we are, you know, trying to um, uh, make it adaptable to uh, climate change. Uh, um, so far, so good. We think we're we're, we're managing that aspect uh, well, and um, the um, the water reclamation district not only deals with the sanitation aspects, wastewater and and sewage treatment and so forth, but also with uh, stormwater management. So covering the metropolitan area is about 125 odd um, municipalities, including the city of Chicago. Um, you have a requirement to see that um, um, large flooding issues um, can be controlled and uh, reduce flood damages. Uh, the district will provide help to local communities to solve local flooding problems and um, also encourage the municipalities to keep their sewer systems up to date, well-maintained and uh, adequate to handle um, large storm events. Now, occasionally we'll get a big storm and, uh, you know, the tunnels and the reservoirs um, will fill but local flooding will still occur because some of the local sewers just have not been upgraded sufficiently to convey the extra stormwater to the tunnels and the reservoir system. So um, like in May of 2020, when you had the record high water on Lake Michigan, and then you had uh, record rainfall over a three-day period, and the river rose five to six feet in a matter of hours. That had to be pretty challenging. Um, but it's your observation that for those residents who had flooded basements or something, it really is more of a local issue? Well, you cite the uh, year 2020 when the lake was at a high level. And, uh, you know, gravity being what it is, you can't release flood water to the lake when the lake is higher than the river. So that was, uh, you know, that's an unfortunate circumstance. Um, to have the uh, the high lake level and the big storm occur at the same time, um, the answer to the situation like that would be to provide more reservoir capacity if necessary, and um, that may have to be done in the future. Well, here, here, here's something I thought of earlier today, given everything that Chicago has to go through and given climate change, and perhaps there could be more events such as 2020. Um, thankfully, lake levels in the Great Lakes are down since then. But, you know, is Chicago kind of like the Venice, Italy of the Great Lakes with everything it's had to go through and, um, and, and future planning needed to keep it operating? Well, we can't predict the future. Um, we do see a um, pattern of increasing severe storms. Uh, very, some of them are very localized. Um, we did have a, uh, a, in 2008, September of 2008, we did have a huge storm that covered the entire county. And uh, that was a time before uh, the reservoirs were available, the tunnels were available, but of course they filled up very quickly and um, uh, the lake was not uh, excessively high so we could discharge a lot of flood water to the lake and we did so for three continuous days which was uh, unheard of uh, as of that time. 
uh, those you know those kind of extreme events uh, may occur again and uh, uh, hopefully when the reservoirs are completed uh, two of them are completed one of them is still uh, under it has been partially put in operation but more capacity is being constructed as we speak um, hopefully that will uh, contain these huge events um, looking at the numbers from those that uh, September 2000 event uh, the, the volume of water that was discharged to Lake Michigan Michigan could have been contained in the two large reservoirs uh, that we have for the tunnel system well thank you um, I, I, I I think what we just kind of confirmed here is that um, that reversing the river is just the tip of the conversation um, uh, about Chicago, where it sits, how it sits, um, what its needs have been since its inception um, in the early 1800s, and how um, it, it, it in in a little bit of a way it is the Venice, Italy of the Great Lakes. Um, certainly, the lakes you know aren't sinking it or you know impinging upon, but. The Great Lakes are pretty big and Lake Michigan's pretty big, but um, it's an incredible system and a lot of credit goes to the work that you certainly did all those years. Well, how about this? What we'll do is um, we'll put a link to how people can find your books to purchase them. Um, I assume they're available for purchase uh, and we'll put a link on our Facebook page. Um, to help people find them. Because um, just in, in looking up what you've done, uh, even the early works and, and writings are terrific. Great history um, about Chicago. Um, it's We just talk about reversing the river, but it's so much more than that. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing your incredible expertise with us about Chicago's early history. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I I would also like to say that the, the, the purpose that the district does what it does is to keep Lake Michigan clean. I mean, that's our source of water supply. It's a sustainable source, and we do all of our work with the primary purpose to keep Lake Michigan clean. There's no wastewater goes back into Lake Michigan from the state of Illinois, only stormwater every once in a while. And, uh, yeah, it's very easy to find my books. Just go to dicklanyon.com, and they're all there, and... Uh, I'm happy to share my knowledge with the world. Perfect. Um, yeah, thank you. And also for your long service to the city. Um, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on. All right. Thank you very much, Helen. This wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. In fact, this wraps up two and a half years of North Coast Chronicles. The founders of the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Peter Ravella and Tyler Buckingham, are taking a six-month hiatus to consider the future requirements of the network and most effective manner in which coastal news can be shared. This means that North Coast Chronicles will also be taking a six-month hiatus. I'm extremely grateful to Peter and Tyler for including a podcast dedicated to the Great Lakes in their lineup and that past episodes of North Coast Chronicles will continue to be made available. Thank you to the people and organizations that have sponsored past episodes of North Coast Chronicles and to our listeners for their interest in all things Great Lakes. Um, Tyler, anything to summarize before I, I guess, I uh, just want to say to you while you're on the line how much I've appreciated working with you. Um, you're a rock star and uh, you've been a great co-producer and engineer and thank you so much. Well, Helen, I just 
want to say how grateful I am to have had the opportunity to work with you. And as you know, uh, chapters open and they they close, and uh, this is a transitional time for me, of course, and I'm looking forward to what the future holds. And I understand that it's also kind of a transitional time for you because you have a new responsibility as uh, being appointed to or, or being asked to serve on the Marine Board at the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. So that is an incredible accomplishment, Helen, and I'm stoked for what you're going to do there. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a real honor to be named to the National Academy of Sciences uh, and the Marine Board. Um, real distinguished group of people. Um, I know half of them. I've worked with them in the past, so that's kind of fun for me, getting to know some new folks um, and their interests in maritime transportation range, land side to water side and everything in between. So uh, really looking forward to providing um being one of the advisors on the Marine Board. Um, that, that's terrific. And of course, there's all there's some other stuff that uh, I'm engaged in. Um, but, you know, um, I thank you so much again for letting me do this podcast. I've learned a lot about the Great Lakes. Um, things that I thought I knew all about, I've learned so much, met so many great people, including our guests today. Um, and um, I, I think, Tyler, at this point, I can say that you know the five Great Lakes and could probably name them off the top of your head now. More importantly, I think you've um, also, uh, I hope you see it as a, another home, a second home to you. And so thank you so much. Thank you, Helen. The creation and content for North Coast Chronicles is by me, Helen Brohl, and co-produced and engineered by Tyler Buckingham of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The Sea Shanty for a podcast was recorded on the violin for the podcast by my friend, Catherine Chambers. Until such time as we know the future of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes, I still welcome your insights and ideas about the podcast and ways to value add the incredible content we've created these past two and a half years by emailing me at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. I hope we meet again. Until then, be good to one another.